Come on, it's June, it's nice out, at least for the next couple hours, until all the rain comes down. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Jay. If I haven't got a chance to say hello yet, um, I'm a pastor here, one of the elders of our church who helps to lead uh, this community, and uh, very grateful for that. Uh, welcome. Hope you can stay afterwards today as we kind of honor some of the the uh, graduates in our community and um, and have a great time having lunch together uh, as well. So uh, we have been in a series that we've been going through the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. If you've been with us, you know that uh, the major theme of this letter as we've been going through it is all about freedom and not just freedom from restriction, which is the way that we often think of freedom in this country, but freedom to experience and to become all that God created us to be and become. And so we've been exploring this concept of, of freedom through a 13-week series uh, in this letter. And um, today, we're, we're getting to uh, what I think is the climax of the letter. Uh, this is where Paul uh, pulls out all the stops and shows in all of its beauty, in all of its greatness, what it actually means for those of us who are far from God to come to faith in Jesus and all that he gives to us in that relationship. Um, so it's, it's incredible. Uh, it's beautiful. Um, but it's, it, at the same time, I realize that the way that Paul uh, paints the picture of, this, of what has occurred uh, can sometimes be very painful. And so um, we, we're going to go some places that might be very painful for you based on your experience uh, in this world. And so I just want to make sure that I mention that on the front end, but also to say that God in his grace, there is nothing that he cannot come and forgive us of or heal us from. And so uh, hopefully as we're pressing into this, uh, you, you will receive healing, not just hurt. That's my hope for this morning. Because uh, I, think, I think God wants to do some incredible healing this morning. As I was praying uh, for this morning, I just, I, I was, I, that's what I kept hearing over and over and over again, is that he wanted to come and bring that. Uh, so I'm going to start off with a question. It's going to kind of lead us in. And if you're new with us, we often dialogue, especially on the front end, so you get to respond to this. But what comes to your mind when you hear the word barren? Empty. Wound? Womb. Yeah. Womb. Without substance. What else? Wasteland. Desolation, right? Desolate. Yeah. Destitute. Lonely. Without hope. Where nothing grows. Anything else? No one's mentioned the one that I tend to think of, which is the word shame. Um, we're, we're about to turn into a, a section where Paul is going to start to talk about a story that, that he's going to use to relate to the experience of the Galatian people. And he's going to do it in one of the most unexpected ways we could possibly imagine. And, and at first, uh, this is one of the most difficult sections of the letter, probably the most difficult section of the letter, 
to interpret, which means we've got to do a little bit of work to mine it out. But like, like so often is the case, the things that need the most mining, the, the things that take the most work to dig out, are oftentimes the most valuable. And so I, I think this is going to be one of the most valuable things that we hear from this entire series. I hope you're listening by this point. Have I done a good enough job to maybe whet your appetite a little bit? Um, but we're gonna, so we're gonna be in verses 21 to 31. I'm also gonna include verses 19 and 20 as I read this, which we covered last week, but you'll see by the end why I include them. And, uh, and so this is on page 812 if you're gonna follow along in the Bibles that we have under the seats. And we're in chapter 4 of Galatians, verses uh, 19 to 31. And this is what Paul says. My dear children, For whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. Tell me, you who would want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are to be taken figuratively. The woman representing two covenants. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman. You who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Now, what in the world is he talking about? (laughs) Right? (laughs) I I, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but if you're confused after me reading all of that, trust me, you're not alone. Um, And and there's a, a number of reasons for that. It might... Uh, He's referencing a story that you may not be familiar with, and we're going to cover that. But one of the things that trips people up the most when they think about this section, when they hear it, is Paul says, I'm going to share a story, and it's going to be taken figuratively. Literally, the Greek word that he uses there is allegory. Um, And and so he's, he's using a story that's coming from the past, and he's saying the way that we should interpret it in this particular situation is kind of like an allegory. If you know what an allegory is, it's a story that that paints how life works. And by listening to the story, you can figure out the point of how, what you should do or how you should live. If you've ever read the, the, the book, very classic, 
Christian novel called The Pilgrim's Progress. It is a story about a, this man named Christian and his life, and everything in it is an allegory for how the Christian's life works and how it happens. So he uses this word, but here's what often trips us up, is because when we think of the Bible, we don't think of it as an allegory, at least us in the Christian community. We think of it as a a real story that really happened. So when Paul says, let's take this story figuratively, a lot of us get our our backs, like the, the hair on our neck raises, because we go, but wait, didn't it actually happen? But here's the thing that you need to understand. Paul is using a real story to make a figurative point. Um, it's in the same way that we might use the resurrection of Jesus Christ to talk about the fact that you have hope after death, that there's always a reason to believe that God can work in your circumstances no matter what it, it looks like from the onset. Because when we look at Jesus on the cross, we think at that point in time, it was like the worst day in the history of the world. The Son of God is being crucified on a cross. What could be worse than that? And then three days later, of course, we see that that was part of God's plan all along. As, the, as believers in Jesus, we believe that that actually literally happened. And yet, we can use that story as an allegory to say, in your life, because of this, there is something to hope for. And so Paul is using that way. He's not saying... Let's look at the whole Old Testament as if it were just some kind of spiritual story that didn't really occur. That's not what he's doing. And oftentimes, if you, if you talk to anybody, they'll think of the Bible that way. I don't know if you've ever had a coworker or a friend or a family member, or maybe even yourself, and you thought of this. And, and you, you th- you, when you think of the Bible, you tend to think of it as just a collection of made-up stories that are supposed to convey a point but not really be true. And so you might have even heard people say, well, you know, if you're a believer in Jesus, you believe that the Bible actually happened, and so you read it your way. But I, I don't really believe that it actually happened, so I'll read it my way. Just because you think it was literal, don't impose your literalism on my figurativism. How many of you experienced somebody said something along those lines? You read the Bible your way, I'll read the Bible my way. Here's the question. What do you say to a person like that? How do you confront that? Well, think of it this way. If I were, if, if, let's say if you were to write a letter, okay, um, and you were going to tell somebody about your vacation, so you have a vacation coming up, you decide to write someone a letter, a friend of yours, and you say to them in that letter, in, I was on vacation, everything was going well, and we, we were in a train wreck. I mean, you won't believe it. I mean, there were bodies everywhere. It, it, was, it was unbelievable. And, and I got carried to the hospital. And now I am writing you from my hospital bed, and I'm, I'm trying to convey the message to you, please come to the hospital. I need, I need friends. I need help. I need somebody to, to do things. I, I'm, I'm here, and I'm stuck here, and I need your help. And then weeks and months go by, and eventually nobody ever comes, and, and you get well, and you go and you visit the person that you wrote the letter to, and you go, hey, what gives? I wrote you a letter. I told you I was in the hospital. I told you all the things that happened, and you never came. What was going on? And your friend tells you, I just thought you figuratively meant you were in a train wreck. I thought you meant that your vacation was kind of a train wreck, and that things were kind of going bad, and, and that... You know, the bodies that you were describing were just like the fallout from the relational tension that you were having on the 
vacation. I took it figuratively. Now, as, as the author of the letter, how would you feel? Misunderstood, at the very least, right? <laughs> yeah, if this person is still standing at the end of the conversation, you've got a boatload of grace for them, right? Why would you be so upset? Because you had a meaning in what you wrote. You had a purpose for the way that you wrote it. You had a message that you were trying to get across. And it didn't matter the way that they liked to receive that message. You had a purpose in the way that you wrote it. And so when somebody t- says to me, you, you, know, you read the Bible one way and I read it another way, let's just agree to disagree, I say, wait a second. Would you want someone to treat your letter the way that you're treating God's letter? Of course not. We're not, uh, we're not even uh, applying the golden rule at that point, right? We, we want people to respect what we have to say, not just to disregard what we have to say. And in the same way, there is a purpose and a point to the way that God wrote his letter through the people that he wrote it. And he's trying to convey certain things. So we, we need to not just say, here's what I'd like to think of it, but what is it actually trying to communicate? Paul has a message. And we, we may not understand what that message is at the beginning, but, but we should at least try our best to understand what he was trying to convey rather than to just to say, well, it's all the same, right? So what was Paul actually trying to say is the question. What is he going for here? What is he trying to communicate? Well, Paul is talking about two sons, two covenants, and one big implication for both of those things. So, so he says this in verse 22 and 23. Abraham, who is a, a, a come before them, Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. Paul, if you notice this, he keeps bringing up this term uh, of being a son of Abraham. And and now he he changes it a little bit and says that Abraham actually had two sons. Throughout this letter and throughout other letters that he wrote to different churches, he constantly talks about what it means to be a child of Abraham. This is a big term. Because to be a child of Abraham in the Jewish understanding of it was a really high privilege. I mean, it was was incredibly high. And one, one way that that gets illustrated is actually in John 8 when Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees and he says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And this is how they responded to him. They said, we are Abraham's descendants. Literally, we're Abraham's children. And we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? We've been given the privilege of being Abraham's children. It's an incredibly high honor. Now, here's the thing about being a child of Abraham. Because it was such a high honor, it would be easy to think that it's such a high honor that you need to do a whole lot of self-effort and self-improvement to earn such a high title. How how many of you have ever sought after a title maybe at work or in a community of friends or whatever the case, and, and you want that title so badly that you're willing to work for decades in order to get it? That's what was going on here. Now, here's the thing about the Galatians, though. They were, before they came to know Jesus, 
Greek pagans, which means that they submitted themselves to a pantheon of gods in the Greco-Roman culture. They were not living according to God's law. They were not living according to His will. They, they couldn't be further away from what God wanted, both in their understanding of who God was, but also in their practice and the way that they lived. But it's, here's the thing. It's easy for us to forget just how messy these people were before they came to know Jesus. We think, ah, they couldn't have been that bad. I'm sure they were kind of decent people, kind of good folks. I mean, they had some things going for them. But that totally misses how incredibly vicious and cruel the world was before Jesus came along. The, the world and the people were who, who Paul is conveying this message to. I mean, in, in their society, I'll give you just a couple examples. In their society, it was common to treat women as property. It, polygamy was the rule of the day, and so you would just collect wives and you would treat them as property. And their whole sense of worth and identity came from the fact of whether or not they could bear you sons or not. And if they couldn't, then they were a good wife, and they would literally be cast aside. See, it wasn't until, until Jesus came along that women were actually treated as equals. When Paul says male female, slave-free, you're all one in Christ. That is completely contrary to the popular belief of what it was like to be either a man or a woman. Women had value all of a sudden. They were considered image bearers of a creative and wonderful God. The same way in, in, in their day, during epidemics when people got sick because of plagues and all these things, the people that didn't believe in Jesus would lay the sick outside in the streets to keep themselves from being infected. If, I mean, you, imagine being in a household and like somebody gets a sniffle, you know? You're like, wait, it wasn't me. I didn't sneeze, you know? It's not a fever. Because next thing you know, if you can't lift yourself off the bed, you're going to be cast out into the streets to keep those who are still well from, keeping what you ha- from getting what you have. It wasn't until believers in Jesus came along that you would treat the sick, not just your own in your own household, with respect and dignity, but Christians even treated those who weren't part of their community in the same way. In their society, there were 140 males to every 100 females in Roman society. Do you know why that is? It's because it was normal to con- commit infanticide if you had a girl because boys were so prized. Literally, we, I mean, we, ha- the, we have a, a, a letter that was written in, um, in, in that day that um, was giving instructions from a husband to his wife. And he was away on business and he said, I'll be back in three weeks. Please take care of this and there, care of this and care of this. And oh, by the way, if the baby comes and it's a girl, throw it out. See, it wasn't until Jesus came along that within the Christian community it was 100 men to 100 women. And the reason was because every child was made in the image of God. Every child was valued. This is the community that Paul is talking about when he says, now in Christ you are children of Abraham. You have been given this high privilege. I don't know about you, um, that when you think about your own life, um, I don't know many baby killers. 
I mean, just in my own everyday living, and people that treated other people the way that it was common to treat people in, in Roman society. If they were accepted in Christ, you are not too messy. You are not too far from him. You are not out of his reach. If these people were within God's reach, if he could extend grace and forgiveness to welcome them in and give them this privilege, then so are you. See, until Christianity came along, though, and literally changed society, paganism was incredibly cruel. And when the Galatians came to Jesus and they saw all of a sudden now with new eyes given to them by the Spirit of God just how broken and dirty and messy their lives were before knowing Him, what do you think they were filled with when they thought of their previous lives? Shame. And they're not alone. Deep down inside of us, all of us know there is something really wrong with us. That we are not the people that we should be. We are not the people that we were created to be. We are not the people that we project to others that we are, no matter what your Facebook status says. See, ever since Adam and Eve, our very first parents, rebelled against God and needed to cover themselves with fig leaves, we've been trying to do the same thing. And it's all motivated by the fact that we realize deep down inside of us that there is a break in our relationship, both with God and with others and even with ourselves. We feel the tension inside of us. We know that we should be better than we are, and yet we're not. And we go, why can't I get there? See, the question is not, do we feel shame or do we not feel shame? The question is always, what do we do with our shame? And the truth is, our default mode which is motivated by our sin, is to cover it. It's to hide it. It's to sew together fig leaves in our nakedness and go, we shouldn't be naked, we can't be naked, we have to hide from somebody, we need to hide from everybody, I need to hide from myself, so I will create a covering to keep a barrier between me and others, between me and my self-perception, between me and God, so that I can feel like I'm safe in my hiddenness. So let me just ask, what do you think are some of the things that we use to cover for the fact that we feel inadequate? To cover our shame. Yeah. Our achievements. Our education. Our, our job status. Our, our income. And the status that we feel from it. either what we're for or what we're against. Yeah, we pick areas that we're, we feel like we're excelling in, and then we look at others who we feel like are not excelling as far as we have, and then we knock them down a peg to feel like we're higher up. Yeah. How could humor possibly be a way of keeping ourselves hidden? You ever hear the term disarm them with humor? Oftentimes when we feel like people are getting too close, we'll default into a mode of, of wit or sarcasm in order to keep people at bay. Recovering, if that's the case. And there's a whole bunch of things that, I mean, we could use our outward beauty as a, as a way to cover over inward shame. 
We think if, I, if I'm pretty enough, because my parents always said that I was pretty, so I, I need to keep up that, that facade, that, that self-effort, and if I do it long enough, great enough, with enough uh, vigor, then, then, then that will be the thing that is my identity. That will be the thing that keeps people from seeing the real me. We might use our children as a covering and say, if I, just, if I have good kids, then I'll be well-respected. If I'm well-respected, then people won't know. We could use our schedule and our busyness to be a covering for us. And nobody can ever get close enough because we're just always so stinking busy all the time. I've got to get to the next thing. I'd love to stay, but I just can't. See, all these things are good things, right? It's good to have things on your schedule. It's good to have kids. It's good to have beauty. It's good to have money. It's good to have humor. It's good to have all these things. But here's the thing. Our, our hearts try to use those good things to make up for the fact that we know that we're not good enough. It's a powerful motivator, actually. Because we do everything that we can to hide from ourselves what we know we actually believe about ourselves. See, in the, the Galatians, you think about this community, they come out of their former lives and now their hearts are transformed by the Spirit of God and they, they see things with fresh eyes and they see themselves and they look at their lives and, and then they hear Paul say these words, you're saved. You're included, not by your record, but by Jesus' record. In spite of everything that you've done, all your shame and your guilt, you are children of Abraham. You're children of God. You've been adopted in. And he loves you and he cherishes you as, your, as his very own. And he's cleaning you up day by day as an expression of his unfailing love for you. I mean, it's almost too good to be true, right? I always tell people that's how you know it's the gospel. When you go, that, that just blows my mind. It can't be true. That's how you know. If you think in your heart, this makes no worldly sense, that's how you know it's the good news of Jesus because it doesn't make sense. Not according to our wisdom. But then here's the thing. Paul leaves, and then another group of so-called Christians comes along and says, you think you're children of Abraham? What? You believe in Jesus, all right. I mean, that's great and all. But you've got a long way to go to cover over the shame. I mean, you've got to obey the law, and you've got to do all the ceremonies, and you've got to be circumcised. I mean, we've been doing these things for years to purify ourselves and make ourselves right before God. And we're Jews. How much more do you think you guys have to go? We weren't nearly as dirty as you. What makes you think that you've got it already? How ignorant. And so this is the section that we just read is Paul's counterattack. And it's a doozy. It's checkmate. I mean, it, it is, it is a, a prize fighter going with a, a, the right hook that he never saw coming. Because he, he uses their own argument against them. He goes, let's talk about Abraham for a second. Abraham had two sons, if you recall. One was Ishmael, who was born the ordinary way. And then there was another named Isaac, who was born 
by promise. And if you, you haven't read the story, um, this comes out of Genesis uh, 16. And, and God comes to a man named Abraham. He's intending to rebuild his covenant with the world because it's been broken because of sin. And he comes to Abraham and Sarah and he says, I'm going to give you a child through Sarah. And from your child, you were, you're going to have incredible amount of dis- descendants. You're going to be a great nation. And through this nation, I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to bring people back into relationship with me. But here's the thing. Abraham and Sarah were both incredibly old. And it didn't happen right away. And so they waited. And they waited. And finally, after enough waiting, after enough saying, well, we can't wait on him anymore. Sarah finally turns to Abraham and says, you know, it would be an absolute miracle if I had a child. Just an, an, an utter miracle. I'm barren. I'm desolate. I've never had a child. And because I've never had a child, I'm ashamed. And because her worth was based on her ability to bear children, especially in her cultural moment, because in her society, her identity as a wife, her identity was built around the fact that she could give her husband a son. And it wasn't happening. And because she couldn't do it herself, she felt worthless. All the things that you described before. And so she turns to him and she says, there is only one thing that we can do to remove my shame. There's only one thing. So you must have a child through my slave. And in Abraham and Sarah's day, it was legal to have legitimate children through the wife's slave. And Sarah had a slave named Hagar. And if Hagar could have a child, then that child was not Hagar's child. It was Sarah's. Legally, it was the wife's. And so she's saying it would be a miracle for Sarah to, to, for me to have a child. But here's the thing. It's not a miracle for Abraham to have a child in his old age. It would be for her, but not so much for him. And so here's the deal. Abraham had a choice. He could either get a family through his own ability right now, or he could wait and get a family through God's miraculous ability. It's one or it's the other. Who would Abraham put his trust in? Would he put it in, in himself or would he put it in God? Would he put it in what he could see or would he put it in what God had already said? Who's he going to hope in? And he and Sarah chose not to wait. They chose to trust in themselves. Not through God's work, but through our work. We're going to do it ourselves Because when we do it ourselves, guess what we get along with doing it ourselves? We get control. We get control. We're control addicts, aren't we? We want to control everything. And Sarah's saying, I can't have a child, but you can, so let's do it that way. And so they use their own human ability, and the fruit of their own human ability was a child named Ishmael. But later, if you keep reading the story, God visited them, and through the miracle that he promised, through his ability, he gave a child to Sarah named Isaac. And so you have two sons, 
You have Isaac, who is born by God's ability, and you have Ishmael, who is born by Abraham and Sarah's ability. And this story represents two covenants. If you think a covenant is an agreement of how two people will relate to one another, and it's saying, uh, this is what Paul is saying, Isaac and Ishmael represent two ways of relating to God. These boys are the result of two entirely different ways to understand how you're in relationship with God. Do I decide to earn my own, with my own ability what I want from God, or do I wait and let what God gives me come completely from his own ability? And I, folks, I've got to say, that is the choice in terms of the way that you relate to God. That is, that is the, I often say, the big E on the eye chart. Don't miss it. You can only relate to him one of those two ways and not both. And Paul says when you go the human way, when, when you try to, to get what you can from God through your own exercising of control, you become a slave. You're enslaved. And we see it in the story, right? I mean, Abraham uh, makes this decision, and even though it was Sarah's idea, he ends up exploiting both Sarah and Hagar. And they end up hating each other for it. And not only that, but then he has two sons, and those sons end up hating each other for it. And if you keep reading the story, the two nations that get born out of those sons end up being at war with one another. And talk about brokenness, right? By trusting in himself, Abraham completely screwed up his life. He became a slave. But here's the thing that you've got to notice, though. God allows Abraham, doesn't he? Do you get that? Like, you think, if God really loved Abraham, he would just continue to, he'd make Hagar the, the barren one. He'd just keep him from experiencing all of that brokenness for you know, generation after generation if he really loved him. So what in the world is going on here? God actually allows Abraham to see the fruit of his own ability before he gives him a son of promise. And you've got to hear this. Please hear this. That is his grace. That is his grace. And, and you, you need to know this because he's doing this very thing for many of you right now. He's allowing you to see the fruit of your own ability through your career or through your beauty or through your parenting or maybe even through an effort of having children, through your humor and through, through the way that you're living, all the things that you're doing of your own ability. He's allowing you to see the fruit of those things and they can never take away shame. Ever. He's doing it as an expression of His love for you. Please hear that. And His grace over you. He, he wants you to know that your ability can never do that. He can never do what He can do and He can do alone. You're enslaving yourself. So he says in, in 25 and 26 that Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. You see who he's talking about there? He's talking about the, the false teachers that are bringing in these accusations that they need to do more. He's saying, you're going to be just as enslaved as they are, and they are in slavery. See, Jerusalem was meant to be the place of freedom, 
And Paul's going, no, no, no. If it doesn't have Jesus all over it, it is the place of slavery. It is the place where people are in bondage because Jerusalem itself and the law that came through Mount Sinai has no ability to remove shame. We have no ability to do it ourselves. We already talked about that in the series. He says, she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem that is above. Do you know who's seated on the throne in the Jerusalem above? It's Jesus. He is seated on the throne of heaven right now, calling people into relationship with him and setting them free. That Jerusalem is from above and is free, and she is our mother. See, in other words, if you're in Christ, if you have put yourself in the place where you're trusting his ability to remove shame and to cover your nakedness, then you are right now a citizen of heaven. It's not if you live a good life, maybe someday, sort of, God might kind of let you in someday. No, today, today, the Jerusalem from above is your mother. It's for you right now. You're a free person. See, your mother city was the place where you're a citizen. It's the place where you belong. If you're in Christ, that's where you belong, is in a place of freedom. And I would ask you, are you experiencing that freedom? As Paul says, if you listen to the false teachers who are telling you to remove your shame through your own goodness and hard work, you're going to be nothing but a slave. But if you understand what Jesus has done for you, then you will be set free. And you'll be free indeed, as Jesus promised. See, John 8.31, Jesus says this to the Jews who had believed in Him. He's talking to people who are coming to faith in Him. He says, If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. And then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What was Jesus' teaching? Don't trust in yourself. I've come to save you. I've come to be a better representative of who you could be. And, And in me, you'll be free to be what I am. So come to me. You who are heavy laden with trying to go your own way, come to me and guess what? I will give you rest. And here's the question I would ask you. How are you resting? Is your burden light these days? Does it feel free and easy? If not, then it's it's not Jesus' load. You're carrying something else other than what he promised for you. See, because in Him you're free. You're you're free to work without needing to get your identity from what you do. And you're free to rest without worry because God promises to care for His children and He will care for you if you're His adopted son. You're free to remain pure in your dating relationships because you don't need your boyfriend or girlfriend to give you an identity through what you do for them. You're free to build a family without needing that family to give you a sense of worth. You're completely free. Are you free, family? And if not, would you like to be? Would you like to be free? I love how Jesus always asks the people that he's about to heal, would you like to be healed? And to us, it's always like, well, that's a no-brainer. Of course, if I've been crippled my whole life, sure, I'd want to be healed. But is it so obvious? 
Are you willing to lay down your identity as a crippled person in order to be a healed person whose full identity has to be in the one who gave you that gift as a free gift? See, that's the exchange. Even in our brokenness, we can often cling to our brokenness because it's the only identity that we know and have security in. Give it up for him. And find that in him you will have more life than you ever thought possible. I love this, because he goes on and he quotes Isaiah 54. And this is, if you remember one thing, remember this, okay? If you forget everything I've said up until this point, it's all gone, okay? In an instant, right? It'll happen 10 minutes from now, so just make it happen now. Remember this, free people are the most fruitful people. Free people are the most fruitful people. Free people are the most fruitful people. We get it backwards. We think the most fruitful people are the free ones, right? The ones who do it the best are the freest. That's not the way the gospel works. Free people are the most fruitful. Because here's what, and this is, Paul brings this right into our view, and we cannot miss it in verse 27. He quotes Isaiah 54, and he says, For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, you who think you're in shame, you who think you're without fruit, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. You want to be fruitful? Be desolate. See, Sarah in her culture thought that by not having a child, she was in shame. And in many ways, because of her cultural context, she was. But Paul says, get this. If you rely on your own human ability, you you might have some kids along the way. Go your own way, and, and you might have a small family. But if you rely on God's ability, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, even if you're as detestable as the Galatians, but you're brought in because of Jesus, more will be your children than she who has children of her own. More will be your fruitfulness because you trusted in Him than if you tried to go your own way. There's a great story that's really well known around New York City. Um, and I, I learned about it. And I just got to use it here because there's a huge city in Harlem, or a huge church in Harlem that was started over 80 years ago. And it was started by a white woman who at the time, before it began, she lived in Manhattan. And she led two uh, African-American women to faith in Jesus. And those women, after they were led to faith, they were in community together and they were studying the Bible together and they were growing in their faith in Christ. And they asked this German woman if she would move up to Harlem where they lived and to begin a community there. And the woman, the German woman who lived in Manhattan was engaged to be married. And so she brought this uh, idea to her fiancé because she felt like she was called by God to join these other women to start this church in Harlem. And her fiancé said to her, if you do that, I'm calling off the wedding. And not only will I not marry you, it's unlikely that anyone would. And so she had a choice. And she wrestled over it, and she wrestled over it, and she wrestled over it. 
until finally she read Isaiah 54. More are the children of the desolate woman than she who has a husband. As she knew, it was unlikely if she went to Harlem that she would ever have children of her own. And it would be a mark of shame on her. I mean, 80, 100 years ago, this, your, your um, access to, to things was far greater as a woman in the city in those days if you were married to a respectable husband than if you were single. But she knew if she obeyed God's call, um, instead of getting her shame removed, instead of getting her righteousness or standing before God and before others from her biological family, from fitting into the white culture at the time, she would absolutely need to get it through Christ and through Him alone. And so she received this promise. As she was reading this and praying through it, she, she expressed this later on, that through Jesus, this is the promise to her, you will have far more children than if you go your own way, than if you try to be fruitful on your own. God loves to work through people like you who are fully dependent on Him. And 80 years later, it's one of the largest churches in New York City who has led thousands upon thousands of people to faith in Christ, who has been a shining city on a hill in that community for the glory of Jesus for generation after generation after generation. Here's the truth. It makes no difference to God who you were before you came to know him. So you come to him, and instead of telling him all the ways that you're going to clean up your life for him, you come to him and you tell him of your great need for his promises. You come and you tell him your desire to trust in him and what he can do through you. You come and you confess your barrenness. You come and you ask him for faithfulness and for fruitfulness. And here's what he does. He comes in and he does far more in you and through you than you could ever do on your own. More will be your children than the fertile person. The person who seems like they've got it all together, who seems like they can produce a whole lot through their life. More will be your fruit, O desolate one, who does not trust in yourself than the one who is fertile. And that's what it means to accept Jesus. That's what it means to know him is that you, you come to Jesus who we know is the fertile one. He's the one who lived the perfect life, who, who was fruitful in every way, yet, we, yet without sin, and, and we are not. And we come to him and we say, I need your life in place of mine. And Jesus, who is righteous, becomes what we are so that we who are rebellious and barren can become what he is. Which means, family, if we produce anything of lasting value, Individually or collectively as a church, it is because the fertile one has come and lived his life out through us. And here's the reason why I wanted to read verses 19 and 20 again. If you remember, Paul says this in verse 19, My dear, what? Children, for who I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He calls them his children. Paul barely had a home. And when he did, he was under house arrest. 
He lost his career as a promising young scholar. He died in exile from all external appearances, from all worldly perspective. You would look at Paul and you'd go, what a shame. What a shame. No children, no fruit. He could have been somebody. But we know that Paul was one of the most fruitful men who ever lived. In fact, if you are here this morning and you have faith in Jesus and you are not of Jewish descent, you are Paul's spiritual great, 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 great grandkids. You are. One of the most fruitful, desolate persons who ever walked the face of the planet. So the truth is he was somebody and he had many kids. And Paul says, if you remember, we said this last week, become like me. Become like me. Put your, your, yourself in Jesus' hands and greater will your impact be. Greater will your mark be. Greater will your legacy be on this world in one lifetime than if you had a thousand lifetimes in your own strength. You want to be fruitful people? You want to have an impact in this world? You want to do great things? Give up on yourself and come to the one that can give you fruit. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the truth, family. I got to say, as I was um, reading this and praying through this section, um, there was someone who, who came to mind over and over and over and over <laughs> and over again. In fact, I, I kept going, no, she's not ready. No, we can't. That, that would be too, too personal, too close to home. We can't do it yet. And as, a, as the week went on, I, just, I heard it so loud and clear that I finally reached out to her. I think it was on Thursday. And said, hey, would you come share your story this week? Would you consider that? But I said, only if, I, I even made a caveat, like only if you feel like God is leading you to do it. Because otherwise I'll take that as a weight and I'm hearing crazy things and, and we'll put it off and, and, and I won't have you share. But she said, I'll consider it and I'll pray about it. And then the next morning she said, I'd love to. So I want to come have Ruth DeLeo share uh, her story of the last three months. Now, I can't believe it's been three months. Uh, but it has, and she, uh, so please welcome her. Good morning. I'm so privileged to be in front of you sharing part of my story with you today. There's so much that I want to share, so I wrote it down so I just don't dabble. Some of you may have heard and know part of what I'm going to share, but I invite you to join me as I reflect on what God has been teaching me in the past few months as I have walked through the hardest time in my life. Dennis and I were excited to reveal to our family this past Christmas that we were expecting our first child, children actually, as we were expecting twins. We were filled with joy as we began this journey to parenthood and trusting God's promises about our children. We clung to, clung to the promises of he knits us together in our mother's womb. He knows and loves us beyond what we can ever amass, ask or imagine. For those of you who don't know, I am a nurse manager of a labor and delivery unit in the biggest delivering hospital in the city of Philadelphia. I began to trust in him 
and not allow my vast knowledge of pregnancy and pregnancy complications to cause me to be robbed of the joy of being pregnant. We went for our 20-week ultrasounds, and everything was looking good with the twins. They were identical, which we had known from the very beginning. We did not find out the sex of the twins, but we're planning a gender-revealing party for friends and family to join us in finding out this great news together. Two weeks after the ultrasound, on a normal Monday, after returning home from work, my water had broke. I knew from that moment on I was going to have to fully rely on God's strength and peace to get me through the hardest times ahead. I knew what was happening and what that meant, and in some quiet moments to myself, I prayed for a miracle. Similar to Jesus praying at Gethsemane, I prayed that God would make everything okay, and then I resolved to praying his will be done. Both Dennis and I knew and I knew what we needed to do and trusted that everything was in God's hands. There was nothing we could do or worry about that was going to make the situation better or fix what we knew was going to happen. Twelve hours after being admitted to the hospital, we were headed home alone. We had given birth to two beautiful girls who passed away shortly after birth, surrounded by peace and comfort of our loving father. As awkward as it felt walking out of the hospital that I work at, Knowing I was coming back in four weeks without the girls, I knew that God was going to be with me every step of the way in the moments ahead. I was going to be home for four weeks, which at first I didn't think that I needed, but this was a time that I would be home to recover and allow my body time to rest. I spent every day in his word, reciting his promises to heal my heart. I learned in this time that God never intended for us to experience suffering and that he mourns deeply with all of us when we go through these hard times in our life. He never wanted us to experience cancer, death, suffering, pain, or loss. He loves us so much, and in these times, we need to remember that. People experience loss every day, and it provokes different feelings in all of us. There's no right way to deal with loss, and while there are the well-known stages of grief, Grieving manifests itself in different ways in different times. While this was the greatest loss we had experienced as a couple, it does not compare to the sacrifice that God has made for all of us in giving up his only son. Through Jesus' resurrection, we know that we will see the girls again, and we can rejoice in that. Every life matters to God. I am reminded of how he turns ashes into beauty. I cannot try to understand why this happened, and I know many of you are experiencing a hard time. And that does not make sense. I believe that God desires goodness for all of us and will continue to provide his blessings in ways that we don't always see. As we have learned, God is the author of our story. And losing the twins is not how I would write my story, but I trust the author. Each moment, God continues to provide me with peace and comfort and an overwhelming confidence in his personal love for me. It's hard to explain all of the truths that God is revealing to me during this season, but I hope in sharing my story, your faith will be strengthened and reminded that God will see you through the storm. I am thankful that our Father is always faithful, even when I don't see it. As Dennis and I continue to take part in his story, we trust his provisions for us. We recognize that being parents may not be part of God's story for us, but we trust in his plan. He works on our behalf because he loves us and has a great plan for all of us. 
Thank you to all of you who have provided meals, have prayed for us, and continue to surround us with love. God is a good God. And I'm thankful that his mercies are new every day. I'm almost finished, sorry. <laughs> the verse that really kind of um, resonated with me that I would like to share with you is from Deuteronomy 3.31. God, your God, is above all. A compassionate God, in the end, he will not abandon you. He will not bring you to ruin. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you love us. Thank you that you're not a dad who doesn't understand what it's like to be a child in this world, but you came and you walked in our shoes in every way. Jesus, you know exactly what it's like to know the brokenness of this world, to know loss, to know grief, to know suffering, and to know pain. You bore all those things, not just so that you could identify with us, but you bore all those things so that you could free us. Thank you that what Ruth shared is true, that in the resurrection, in your overcoming of death, we know that death was overcome with those girls and that they are with you, and we hope in that. We, we put our hope and our faith in you. And I thank you so much, God, for the way that you're giving hope to Ruth and to Dennis in this time. I remember just going to visit them shortly after it happened and, and just the peace and the rest and the grace that was on them even in, in those first few difficult days. It's just been so evident that your hand has been all over them and that you've been reminding them constantly of your grace and your love for them. We thank you that the promise is true. We don't know if they'll ever be biological parents, but we know that they will be spiritual parents. Because to be a spiritual parent is to be fruitful because of what Jesus does in them. And you are doing that work now. Thank you for all the ways that Ruth has even seen that so far. When, when I came to her and asked her to share, she's, she, she even said, I believe that God has a purpose in doing this and, and I want other people to know of his goodness and his grace over us even in this difficult moment. So thank you, God, for giving that grace to them. Pray for the days ahead that you'd keep doing it, Lord. Keep making them fruitful. Keep giving them rest. Keep giving them hope. May it be in you and you alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.